0: Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code podcast15.
2: Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com
0: slash pantsuit. So for those of us who are not as scientifically literate as we wish we were, What should we make of the folks who are talking about how we should really all just be exposing ourselves to develop some kind of herd immunity here? This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we're going to catch up on the headlines, and we have brought Michelle back to answer your questions about COVID-19, because the answer to, do you have questions for Michelle, was a resounding, oh, yes, we do. So we'll be going through that later in the show with her. But first, we wanted to catch up On the myriad of ways the Trump administration is failing in its duty to protect America during a global pandemic, it is tempting for me to say he's bad at it and try to ignore all the ways that he's bad at it. But the reality is the consequences of his terrible leadership and their terrible decisions are starting to really Play out in many of our lives and we think it's really important to focus on that and to process that before we go back to a place of he's just not up to the task. So we're going to do that. Um, We'll end this section on a positive note with local leaders who are up to the task and then we'll share our interview with Michelle.
0: Sarah, what I'm hearing you say is that you want me to come out of my basket of he's not up for it and really (laughs) flesh out the items that I have put in that basket.
2: Well, I just I think it's a couple things. One is. It's so tempting to me to just be like, he's bad, he's bad, he's bad. And yeah, but if we don't stay laser focused on the consequences of the different ways in which. He's bad at his job. One, we can't help the people who are being hurt. Um, and two, I just think that's his strategy is like do a lot of bad things at once so you can't keep up. And also find an enemy to go after, which is what he's doing with the World Health Organization, so that we're distracted. And it just feels very important to not be distracted. I don't think your basket is a, is a distraction technique. I just think it is. Again, I don't think a basket is big enough. I think we're at a dump truck level. By now, um, but it does seem important to sort of piece through all of it.
0: I'm going to start with the World Health Organization. Then, Trump has made public comments several times now about defunding the WHO because he believes that it did not adequately prepare the world for the virus, and more interestingly, that it unreasonably accepted assurances from China about the way that the Chinese government was handling the virus. What is really strange about that is that the president himself, you just do a quick Google search and you can see where Mm -hmm. from his lips he's saying, Chinese government's doing a great job. My my buddy Xi Jinping has this under control. Mm -hmm. And I have more grace for one of those than the other. And surprise, it's not the president. Because the World Health Organization, as it relates to China, I think, is in a very similar position to officials in the Trump administration and governors as it relates to Trump. This is what it is. China, as a country, exists and has the leaders that it has. And if you're the World Health Organization, you need to do enough to engender favor with those leaders for mm-hmm. them to be cooperative with you. You can't, as the World Health Organization, go around slamming China six ways to Sunday and expect to get your inspectors on the ground to do research and understand what's happening. You know, you must have their cooperation. And so you do what it takes to get it. And that's exactly what we see from Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci and governors across the United States who've been very reluctant to be super critical of the president because he is who he is and he is the president and they need his cooperation on some level. And so they're not going to go out of their way to piss him off right now. And he surely recognizes that dynamic within his own administration and, and at this global level. But I think it's just always important to the president to make sure there is a fall guy, no matter what the circumstances Mm -hmm. are. And the virus doesn't have a fall guy. Oh, that it could. It would be so much easier. Uh, But this whole situation reminds me of the scene from Into the Woods. Do you know this musical, Sarah? I do not. Okay. Into the Woods is fabulous. And the whole second act, the first act is all these fairy tales woven together, seeing their way to happily ever after. And the second act is what happens after happily ever after. And what happens is a total catastrophe wrought by the wife of the giant that Jack and the Beanstalk killed. And there's this wonderful song in it where they're just singing about whose fault it is. And the whole song is, no, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. And they explain all the ways how. And in the meantime, the giant just keeps wandering around crushing people. And I think that's what Mm -hmm. we're doing with coronavirus right now. You know, I think Nancy Pelosi said it best. Weak people blame others. You know,
2: he is accusing the World Health Organization of doing exactly what he himself did. This is a strategy he has used before. Blame others of failing in the exact way he himself has failed. I think that he will continue to do that as these failings stack up. We now have the $1,200 stimulus checks full of kinks and a system that's not working and that's not distributing the money like it's supposed to. Even though he wanted the checks with his name on them, they had to put them in the memo line because that's not who signs the checks in the Treasury. We have the Paycheck Protection Program failing epically. There is not enough money. It is not supporting small businesses. It's not working the way it's supposed to if it's working at all. We don't have the test to even begin to think about reopening the country. We don't have the tracing, either the technology or the people that we need to begin to open the country. You know, it was a month ago he stood there and told us, Google's going to have this website and we're all going to be driving through Walgreens and Targets and Walmarts all over the country. It hasn't happened anywhere close. And so as these failures stack up, he is going to continue to do this. He's going to continue to fail to blame other people for exactly what he did wrong. And, you know, every time he does... I think it's so important to continue to articulate the truth and the reality of what's happening. You know, we've been hearing from a lot of you about people in your own lives who are rejecting quarantine, rejecting social distancing, um, following, if not the leadership of the president, most certainly the subtext of many of his comments and turning away from the reality of the risk and danger of a global pandemic and you know the first i think thing we can all do in the face of this level of misinformation and misdirection is just to continue to speak the truth and to articulate the reality no he ignored the virus he downplayed the risk we have him on twitter we have him on video we have him on audio praising china saying it was one or two people and as the the gaslighting continues we all have to just stay focused on that
0: i want to make a point about his name on the checks if i may Mm. there is a part of me that is tempted to roll my eyes at that and move on but i think it speaks so much more fundamentally to how he understands government in a way Mm -hmm. that is really important and is being blown out in this crisis to proportions that are really damaging. I don't think that he understands that funds in the federal treasury don't belong to him. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. he Mm -hmm. he wants to sign the check because he thinks that's his money. Jared Kushner wants to control the flow of PPE and ventilators because he thinks that belongs to the Trumps because they are in the federal stockpile. And, and that is just a fundamental misunderstanding of what the role of the president is. And I, that's the, that is the good faith argument I want to make to people mm-hmm. who hear this and say, well, you just hate the president. No, no, no. I just love our system. Yep. I think our system as it exists where the president is there to run a branch of government for the people, not for himself, is worth preserving. And when you have someone who says, I'm going to sign that check in a way that makes what was a very impossibly difficult task of quickly getting all this money out accurately in a, in a rushed way, even more difficult because he's adding a layer into a process that's already a hard process. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of grace for the Paycheck Protection Program. That was a hard thing to do. It was a hard thing to pull together. It is very problematic in its oversight, in its execution, in the way that if you have an existing relationship with a banker, you're much better positioned than someone who doesn't. That's Mm -hmm. not okay. But at the same time, I understand that the United States Congress said things are on fire. We're not going to say, well, this water looks a little muddy. We're only going to have clear water. So just hang on. Let the fire rage. You know, they did what they could do quickly. And now they're trying to figure out what comes next. And I'll be honest with you and say that if I were a member of Congress, I wouldn't like it, but I would vote with the Republicans for a clean authorization of more money for this program. Because even though it's not working well, it's something and we must get this relief out there. And then I would fight like crazy for more money for state and local governments and for hospitals, for all the other places we need that money and fight like crazy for good oversight on it. You know, there, this, this is the thing to me. This is a crisis, which by definition means all of our options suck. There are not great available options, and I think we're so conditioned to fight with each other about everything and so conditioned to believe that my side has good intentions and your side has bad intentions and it's always a binary that we have no idea how to work our way through this crisis. Zero people, and this gets to the protests that you talked about at the top of the show, Sarah zero people want to do social distancing for another day. No one wants that. No one is saying, hey, actually, could we hang on to like five more months of being trapped at home trying to teach preschool and do our regular jobs and worrying about whether we have enough money to buy groceries? No, nobody wants that. And so we got to put down all of our regular tools here. And the only people who can bring the rest of us along in putting down those regular tools are our elected officials. And the president is just incapable of putting down his regular tools to lead us through a different time right now.
2: It's not even the check signing. It's the way he articulates, well, I'm the president has total authority. No, No, it's the opposite. You know, nothing has clarified how well he is at misinformation, how well he's done at convincing people they can trust no one but him, than the fact that we are in this place where people are dying and they're still following his lead. And that's where, you know, at, at first, I th- and I still feel this way, you're never going to convince any, everybody. There's always going to be people out there that want to be against But so many of these protests in Michigan and Kentucky and Ohio are about following his lead, about these subtle messages he sends on Twitter and to his base that, okay, it's time to fight back. I'm the only person you can trust. And it's just and again, it's the same crazy making gaslighting that then it's oh well, it's the Democrats that are blind because they hate Trump so much they can't see anything. So. You know, what I've started doing when people accuse me of that is saying, I can tell you things that I think he's done right. I can tell you many things that I criticize Obama for. Can you tell me anything he's done wrong? And you can't say Twitter. And they can't answer that question. And it is revealing in a way that I think provides at least a a momentary break, not a, you know, not enough to turn people around, but just a moment of like, oh, right. Yeah, I he's taught me that he doesn't do anything wrong because he believes he doesn't do anything wrong. And I'm the he's the only person we can listen to. So it's you know, it's we're seeing the danger. It's not just that it's frustrating and it's it makes you angry. Like we're really seeing the, the consequence of this prolonged strategy of misinformation and fear mongering that, you know, people are going to follow him off a cliff, which is where I feel like we're at right now. And it's so scary. And I, you know, I want to turn my eyes away so badly. And I am thankful for the local leaders who give me something else to look to and to focus on and to feel that I'm that he's not our only hope. But you know, I still think it's essential that we protect ourselves from it because it can be so heartbreaking and so frustrating and so infuriating. But it is our reality right now. And part of the reason that strategy works is because it is so infuriating and heartbreaking that we turn away. And we cannot turn away right now.
0: I want to say to you about the protest that I think it's important not to be in a space where any criticism, argument, good faith discussion about how to handle this is off the table. I don't hear every single argument against even things Governor Bashir, who you know I'm on record now as thinking is like the best governor we've ever had. Um, you know, I think it's important for people to challenge. Some of what he's doing. I think we need that tension. I think we need, I think we need to hear one another on what could be most effective right now. I get this sense that he's having those conversations behind the scenes because he frequently comes out and says, I've heard criticism about this and I understand it, and this is why this is my judgment. That's important. So mm-hmm. I don't want to be like a social distancing sycophant who who won't hear <laughs> any kind of criticism of what's happening. And at the same time, I don't think what you're seeing in these protests has much, if anything, to do with following public health guidance or not. The mishmash of chants that were shouted Mm -hmm. over our governor yesterday tells you that this is the culture wars painted on top of a pandemic. It was abortion is not essential. Okay. So you're shouting your concern for life over someone who's literally announcing deaths. Forgive me for having some cognitive dissonance. You know, and all of this about we want to work, reopen Kentucky, don't let fear govern. Well, listen, again, everybody wants to get things open as soon as possible. But here's the other side of it. If we look at what we're learning throughout the world, You can reopen stuff and people don't come (laughs) because Mm -hmm. until the public feels confident Mm -hmm. that we can safely engage with one another, most of us are going to stay home. And that puts businesses in a worse spot because there's a cost to being open if nobody's coming through your doors and spending money. Right now, the lost opportunity cost is huge, and I do not deny that a bit. But think about how much bigger it will be when we say, go ahead, turn your lights on, pay your employees, pay your rent, pay for water, pay for Internet service, pay for all the things that you need, pay for inventory, get it all back in the stores, and then no one comes for a period of months? Mm
1: -hmm. we got to work
0: through this really thoughtfully and mm-hmm. one step at a time and one layer at a time. And so it's just not as simple as something that you can put on a sign. I wish it were. But when you hear all of these things together, you're not a king to our governor. Well, friends, if you, if that's where you're coming from from a liberty perspective, Take up your first beef with the president of the United States who talks Mm -hmm. about himself as a king every single day. Federalism doesn't mean no one is the boss of you. It means that the state is the first boss of you and the most Mm -hmm. powerful boss of you. And I get, again, that there are good faith arguments about whether something is effective or not, whether it psychologically takes us too far. This is very complicated. There are no good or correct answers. But the inconsistency of the position makes me not take it seriously. And I don't want to be there with my fellow Americans, but that's where I am about these protests.
2: Well, we know many of you are struggling, like we said, with family members and friends who are not taking this seriously. And so we want to put out a call for those of you who have had firsthand experiences with the virus. Healthcare workers, people in recovery from the virus, people whose family members have contracted or passed away from the virus. If you're willing to talk to us, because we hope, because we're not CNN or the New York Times or Washington Post, we're just two moms in Kentucky who have this amazing community of people. If we can put together some of those voices, um, that that will give you a tool or something to share with the people in your life who don't believe what they see in the mass media. So if you're willing to share, please email us at hello at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com.
0: Before we turn to our conversation with Michelle, let's talk about a few local leaders who are doing good work. We heard from Bailey
2: praising the mayor of Tulsa, Oklahoma, G.T. Bynum. She said there was a New York Times opinion piece written by the mayor of Tulsa And that his strong leadership in the face of the pandemic, even though there's been a lack of direction at the state and national level, has really been getting positive press and praise from the people of Tulsa.
0: We also heard from Rachel about State Senator Jeff Jackson in North Carolina, who she says has always been a local favorite, but has really been a steady presence and has done a great job with his social media, making sure that he's not spreading fear, but facts. And Rachel appreciates it very much. Up next, we are going to talk again with Michelle Becker, a coronavirus researcher, to have her answer some of your very practical and pressing questions.
2: Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020, But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy and put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now, and there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's p.com slash pantsuit. The second
2: most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go to for high quality vacation essentials like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling blouses and shorts from $30 washable silk tops premium luggage options and so much more all quince items are priced 50 to 80 percent less than their similar brands by partnering directly with top factories quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us and quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes i got big plans for my quince chiffon pleated skirt in japan they like a loose flowy look over there to battle the heat i will be adopting that strategy with that skirt pack your bags with high quality essentials from quince go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash pantsuit so excited to have Michelle Becker back when we put out the call for questions you had for Pantsuit Politics, new scientific expert on all things COVID-19. You responded very passionately, and Michelle was generous enough to sit down with us and walk through many of your questions.
0: Michelle, thank you so much for coming back. We put out a call for any questions people had of you, and, and they answered. So here we are with lots and lots of questions. <laughs> Let's start with I'm trying not to get COVID-19. And I'm worried about things like bringing groceries into my house or ordering takeout, which we touched on a little bit last time. But people have more questions about how should I be handling things like mail and groceries and boxes that come into my home from somewhere else?
1: So that has a lot to do with the virus itself and how long, like what the structure of it is and how long it lasts in certain places and on surfaces and things like that. So the virus is um, composed of an internal part that has genetic material in it. In this case, it's RNA and then it has an outer surface that's actually taken from part of a cell. It's been from an internal membrane inside of a cell. So in that sense, it's fragile and can last on surfaces outside of a body for a while, and they've done some experiments with this particular virus to try to determine how long it lasts on those surfaces, and the idea is that if you leave it alone on a surface in the environment outside of a human body, then it breaks down, and if it breaks down, then it's no longer capable of starting an infection in anybody, and so that's the idea. You want to, when you're cleaning or trying to be aware of that, that's kind of what you're trying to do is give it a chance either to actively break it down or let it break down. And it doesn't last on surfaces more than even in ideal conditions like two to three days. So if you're getting mail, if you're getting packages that are coming in and you don't need to use them right away, it's easy to stick them in a corner and just let it be for two to three days if you've got that option. If it's something that you need to use more quickly, things that are effective for wiping it down would be bleach, uh, soap and water actually are great. Soap will destroy the outer membrane of the virus really quickly. And alcohol, vinegar is you know, a normal cleaning solution that a lot of people use in the house, and that's not effective. So those are just some ideas. We have a quarantine corner in the house that sometimes when we get stuff from the grocery store, we we'll stick it in the corner if we don't need it right away, and it's stable at room temperature. If you're, but again, this is, the other side of this is what actually causes an infection. So you have to get virus into your body. So, if you have something that's coming in from the grocery store um, and you're it's the outer surface of it and you stick it in the fridge and then you take it out of the package and eat it as long as your hands are clean and you're eating out of the inside of that package, we kind of talked about this a little bit last time, but the general food safety in our country is pretty good so food that's prepared or food that's packaged, there's normal food safety handling that's going on in that that's going to prevent pretty much any for the most part, pretty much any uh, contamination of that food substance from a, from somebody who's handling or working with it, but in that process. So you want to you've got to think about people that have maybe been in contact with that product in that time frame, either making the food or packaging it or delivering it. And the more steps that has, the more potential you have for somebody coming into contact with it. But Overall, with the fragility of the virus and the fact that you have to get it inside of you, if you're handling things and washing your hands and not sticking your fingers in your mouth if they're not clean, then you, that's a really good way to take care of it. So
2: with some of that food, if it's if we're following the ideas of food safety, then should we think carefully about other foods that might give us pause food safety wise? I'm thinking about like sprouts. Sprouts are sort of notorious for um, E. coli outbreaks or salad greens. What would you say about foods like
1: that? I think if you want to take care of them, like you would take care of them and the idea that they um, could be contaminated with something that has more consistent outbreaks like E. coli or rummine lettuce or things that we've had trouble with. You can go with that assumption if you wash them or if you clean them in that way. I think even rinsing, like if you rinse your salad greens and then spin them or dry them or eat them or whatever after that, rinsing does a great job as well. It's that me- mechanism, the mechanism of water running over um, anything that you we're going to eat is great. It doesn't have to be a special, you don't have to Quarox your lettuce. You don't have to do anything overly dramatic with things like that because they're those normal. And again, they're still being tested. um, Normal farm production and things like that, that are being tested for those other contaminants are coming up. Those are still being taken care of, but this, you have to have somebody who's really actively infected, actively sneezing on your, food and actively getting it to your house before that virus normally breaks down. And just any of those things that distance that time frame or that process is going to reduce the risk of picking up something from the food that you are bringing into your house.
0: If you were bringing that food in from a crop sharing organization or a local farm, would you think about it the same way? Rinse it, wash it, and then eat it
1: and it's fine? Yes. And honestly, with some kind of a crop sharing, you think about it, you probably have a lot fewer people that are handling that food product, mm. so if you're thinking about it's a family that is harvesting and transporting it, that's probably a lot less people that are interacting with that item that you're bringing into your home than a commercial farm that gets packaged in a plant um, and that gets driven or handled by grocery stores and stocked on shelves and things like that. so I think that that Just from the number of people, if you think about contact with each person in that process, is a potential contributor to somebody getting virus on your materials, then you actually, that actually might reduce that number because of just fewer people handling it.
0: As we're thinking still about avoiding this or what are the potential risks, what would you be thinking about if you had? a very small person in your house a newborn toddler what do we know about how the virus would impact them and how can we keep them safe to the best of our ability
1: so coronavirus in general have not been shown to cause significant disease in younger kids so the likelihood is that if they were to get infected they probably wouldn't get sick it's not an absolute never ever going to happen there have been cases but they're usually underlying immunocompromised or an, another disease that is um, affecting their ability to fight off the virus. But coronaviruses really are have a very consistent age-dependent disease correlation. And so younger kids really don't have disease. And so it really is the more the numbers get higher and higher with severity of disease and actual symptoms, the older somebody gets. The issue that is being looked at with kids is that if they get exposed to the virus and actually are infected and replicating virus, they may shed virus and give it to other people more um, and have that not be as obvious because they're really not sick and have that get passed on. So that's one of the concerns I've heard about people talking about having kids go stay with grandparents, because if there's a chance the kids are sick and it's not obvious, they could infect Um, and cause disease in somebody who's older. But in general, there's not so much concern about kids getting sick.
0: We had lots of questions about hydroxychloroquine and acetaminophen and other ways that we might treat this antibiotics. Can you talk with us about what actually could be effective, what is unknown in terms of being effective, what we should stay away from, and how we should be thinking about this?
1: So we talked, I think, about this a little bit last time, but the idea is that if you get infected, it's normally a lung disease, so it is going to hit your lungs. Um, and we can there's a little bit of information about potentially a GI component of that, too, and I can talk about that in a second. But your body is going to have an immune reaction to it um, that kicks in a couple of days, usually, after the initial infection. So the virus is going to be absorbed into your body, usually through your mouth, through your lungs, and it's going to start replicating inside those cells. And that will set off a notice to your body that something's wrong, and so the immune cells are going to come back in and um, try to fight that off. So the issue with the hydroxychloroquine and the azithromycin, which is the antibiotic that was initially tried, is that the hydroxychloroquine is an anti-malarial drug, but it's also used in people... Um, who have some autoimmune diseases. And so it is known to be immune modulator and anti-inflammatory. And so that is part, probably why it was tried initially, because one of the things that we were seeing is that there's an, there seems to be, in a lot of people who have severe disease, an overreaction of the immune system. And so things that were helping to ramp down the immune system um, later on in the infection is something that might help people survive. The, there's actually a, there was a trial in the U.S. that was started with hydroxychloroquine that was stopped because people were having some cardiac problems um, in the trial. So that whole idea of hydroxychloroquine has been, from what I can tell, pretty much debunked at this point. Um, but again, as a something like this, like a pandemic when people don't know what's going on and are seeing symptoms and are trying to react to symptoms, they're going to try and use whatever's in their toolbox. So that was the initial trial for this. The zithromycin, as an antibiotic, normally you wouldn't think about that because it's against a bacteria and not a virus. But again, it's used in combination, and some antibiotics have other activity besides just um, hitting the, the bacteria And there's also, all of us have bacteria in your gut all the time. And so there's more and more actually really fascinating research going on right now about what that bacteria does in your body just in a normal day and what impact it could have on interactions with other pathogens that you come into contact with. There's ideas of how you metabolize food and dealing with obesity and dealing with um, being able to put on or take off weight. So we're just starting to peel back a layer of the complex interactions between you as a human being along with the bacteria that you carry in your system just ongoing. So that's why having an antibiotic in the mix may have some effect on your reaction to the virus and the virus disease that we don't completely understand. So... I think azithromycin was actually pulled off pretty quickly from the people that had initially tried the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. They were doing trials with just hydroxychloroquine, and those have been stopped from what I'm seeing. They're looking at, from what I'm seeing now, the idea is now to do things that are supportive for the immune system early in the infection. And then as symptoms start getting more severe, looking at things that might help the immune system ramped back down and not have so much damage to the body. So initially, they were like, no steroids, because they saw some indication that steroid use in China was negative or had a negative outcome. Steroids can be immunosuppressive. So now, and it may have been that they turned off the immune system too early, they gave it too early. So I'm now seeing medical professionals say, let the immune system start. And then you can look at steroid usage going forward. You asked about NSAIDs and Tylenol and acetaminophen and ibuprofen. Again, I think those early reports were anecdotal and people trying to correlate. There's so many things going on. These patients are being given a lot of drugs. They're coming in with a lot of underlying issues that may or may not be well-known. And doctors are just trying to give them as much supportive care as they possibly can and help them get through this. Because if you can get through the hardest part of this, if you're really sick, people are recovering. And so it's that supportive care that they're trying to figure out what's best. So initially, it did look like some of the NSAIDs were potentially linked to outcomes that weren't as good. And so they were saying, okay, don't do that. Now I'm seeing that that is not, again, it's not correlating with larger numbers and larger groups of patients. And so... I'm pretty much seeing no restrictions on using that. So if you were to get sick and were at home and trying to deal with your symptoms, I think it's completely fine to take Tylenol or acetaminophen or ibuprofen based on what you feel better with. Um, I think initially one of the ideas was not um, aspirin because ha- aspirin has a connection with kids that have um, chicken pox and they can have another reaction in a small number of cases. So if kids have chickenpox, they don't give aspirin. I think they were correlating that at the same in the same way. But from what I'm seeing now, it doesn't seem that there's any generalized and confirmed restrictions on using um, any of the, things that help bring down a fever or help with anti-inflammatory properties.
0: This reminds me of when I was a lawyer and it made me so uncomfortable that I constantly had to tell clients, here's what I think should happen, but I don't really know what will happen. And having the realization, <laughs> I remember sitting in my desk as a lawyer getting off a call like that and thinking, oh my gosh, this is how doctors work too. <laughs> they, they have some <laughs> ideas, but they don't always know. And it's just very hard to like sit with we're not sure.
2: Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin. So it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children, as young as possible, to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze Sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go, here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And Even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, God, I love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit.
0: Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. I
2: think think another question we got a lot of was about immunity. What does it Mm -hmm. mean if you have immunity? You know, I heard a very confusing report on basically depends on where you live, Many people are exposed. If the immunity tests um, are even accurate, like can you pass the virus if you're already immune from it? We have lots of questions about that.
1: So there's probably an overlap between getting immune and still having some virus in your system. So if you think about if you ha- or have an ongoing infection, it's going to start off with just a few particles, and if your body is actually going to give that virus a place to make lots more viruses, we call the um, if you put one virus in a cell and you get a certain number out. We actually call that a burst size. And so some viruses you put one in you get 10 out. If you put one in you get 100 out. Some you get a 1000 out. So you can have a really significant number of amp- you know, that amplification step in your body. And if you think about that if that's going on in your lungs, then you are breathing out the virus while that's going on because that's just part of the air exchange just coming in and out. You think about if you have virus in your GI tract, then you could shed it through your stool, and that can potentially, you know, even if we're trying to be really hygienic, you can actually spread that too. Um, right now, it seems that virus that is being, coming out of with a cough or a sneeze or breathing is um, how it gets passed. There is some evidence that there's virus in the GI tract, but probably there's, we haven't confirmed that that's actually infectious and capable of starting another round of infection. But as that virus amplifies in your body, your immune system rushes in to try to dampen that whole process down. And in that process of the immune system running, coming in, you are going to have antibodies that identify that um, virus and help eliminate it or knock it down and knock that whole process down. And that's what they're testing for. They're actually testing for that you have antibodies in your system that have responded to this specific virus and now the antibodies are amplifying and your body is making lots of those and those can be detected in your blood. So you, if you think about an overlapping curve, like you're, the antibody numbers go up and then they start to go down and overlapping with that, so your virus goes up and then goes down and overlapping with that, the antibodies come up and go down. So the antibody tests that they're starting to come out with more and more, which I'm really excited to see, they're looking for those antibodies in your blood they are hopefully testing those tests to make sure that the antibodies that they're seeing and reacting to are specific to this virus and not to other coronaviruses too. So that is a question and that is a problem in some of the testing that's going on right now is they're starting to learn and vet and see because they haven't tested these tests with the entire population and everybody has probably seen some kind of a coronavirus infection before as a cold. So there's going to be different combinations of antibodies that people have. So you have to verify, you have to vet those tests and test the test and make sure that information is correct. So as the antibodies come up, you essentially can, by test, be said to be immune or have had an immune reaction to this virus. But that will probably become positive before your body has completely cleared the virus. So that is more probably related to a symptom onset if you are symptomatic. And so you can do some counting. And there's some, I don't know the exact numbers right now, but I think most people are saying if you are 14 days out of being symptomatic, as far as we know, you're not really shedding virus anymore. But that is there's some shoulders around that information too. So maybe it's 10 days, maybe it's 18 days or something like that. But it's gonna get less and less and less as you go down. And so even if you have a little bit of virus that you're producing or that's less in your system, it's just gonna get less and less and less and then you would be less infectious to somebody else in that process. So the testing ongoing, like after symptoms, should maintain some positivity for the fact that you have had antibodies or you have antibodies to that, whereas the virus would go down. But if you're coming right out of an infection, those two things could overlap, where you would be potentially still producing a little bit of virus or having some in your system, but also saying that you're positive for antibodies and therefore immune. But the longer you get away from being symptomatic or having um, the actual infection, the less chance it is that you're producing virus and you're still producing, but you are still producing antibodies.
0: So for those of us who are not as scientifically literate as we wish we were, what should we make of the folks who are talking about how we should really all just be exposing ourselves to develop some kind of herd immunity here?
1: When you look at the data alone and you take out a lot of other factors, that is one way to do this. The problem comes with how much that could potentially cause in a short term in the problems in the, in the health care system and in people dying. Ultimately, that is the goal. And essentially, we have some level of herd immunity to these other coronaviruses that cause colds. And we have, essentially, we have herd immunity for the circulating flu viruses. So ideally, we will get to that point. And I think with as contagious and infectious as this virus is, we probably will get there. The I think the idea is that depending on how we come out of social distancing, that that could take. A shorter or a longer period of time, and the other side of that too is we really don't know. Herd immunity depends on people staying immune, and so the other side of that is if we don't have durable immunity to this virus, and you, your immunity wanes, or sorry wanes, and you can get reinfected, then that changes some of the dynamics a little bit, but still. For a virus to pass person to person to person to person, there has to be a certain percentage of those people who are capable of getting infected and producing virus to get somebody else infected before the immune system clamps down on it. You could have immunity to a flu virus that's going around because either you had a vaccine that hit it or you had that strain before, and you could be exposed to it, and it could start replicating in your body, but your immune system kicks right in. And knocks it out and hopefully you don't have any symptoms, but you have now reactivated your immunity to that virus too. So that just on that is that ongoing herd immunity because it hits a person, and if there's enough people around them that are already immune to it, it doesn't have anywhere to go, it just fizzles out and dies. That that whole outbreak or that whole round of infection. So this has been bad because this has everybody around somebody who is infected is naive and doesn't have immunity. So it has lots of places to go. And as we have more and more people that have had the virus and have some level of immunity, especially in the first year, it will be easier for that to be controlled. But in general, herd immunity is thought to happen when we have about 70% of people who have some level of immunity to it. And models right now say even when this first wave goes over, we probably will have between 3 and 30% of the people immune. Now, hopefully that's closer to the 30, not the 3. But um, that's again, needs testing and needs a better understanding of people who might be asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic um, and actually have had the, had the virus and had the disease. So, but 70% is usually considered decent herd immunity. And we're a ways away from that
0: there are a lot of models out there and a lot of analysis of those models. People kind of drawing conclusions about mortality rate of COVID-19 versus flu. I wonder if you think we are anywhere near having enough data to reach those conclusions, um, or just how how confident should we feel in the modeling right now?
1: So the biggest issue for that number or for that analysis is the denominator of how many people are infected. And because of the lack of initial testing and testing of general populations, um, we're not going to know that until we have really widespread antibody testing. And that is starting, I'm like I said, I'm encouraged to see that starting. Um, I've also on the other side of that heard about tests that were released but aren't actually correct. They're not giving good results. So once we have reliable tests that really pretty much a broad swath of people can get tested, then we'll start to have that denominator and we'll start to be able to understand what the percentages are of people who may have been exposed to the virus and had an active infection but didn't get severe disease or did, or either were mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic. And that's the... That's the number we need to be able to actually figure out which of these models are accurate. And that's the number that we don't have. So that hopefully in the next couple of months, we will start having those tests and we will start having them used widely enough that people will start to have the answer and start to have that denominator number. And it is, you know, right now the Current with the numbers, the initial numbers coming out of China, we were looking at potentially a 1% to 3% mortality rate, um, where flu is down at 0.1%. So that was a 10 to 30 fold higher uh, mortality rate. And there is a possibility that if our number of people that are actually infected and are mildly or asymptomatically infected, that number could be closer to flu but the difference between flu and this is what you were just talking about with herd immunity, because we do have immunity and we do have resources for flu that we don't have for this virus. But you could look at in the future that this could become more like flu, but we still need that denominator number to be able to figure that out.
2: Michelle, thank you for volunteering to continue to take a, influx of our many, many, many COVID-19 questions.
0: I'm sure there will be more. We really, really appreciate it. And I second it, Michelle. Thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you guys for your platform and doing this. This is really great.
0: Thank you again to Michelle for being so generous with her time and expertise. Thanks to all of you who wrote in with questions. I'm sure that this episode is a perfect example of if you have a question, someone else has that same question too. Mm -hmm. So feel free to send anything else our way that you'd like us to dig into. We wanted to end with a beautiful prayer written by Kyla, one of our longtime listeners who we appreciate so much. And we thought her words were a lovely way to send us all into the weekend.
2: Prayers for a turbulent time. God of tiny, perfect flowers and big, terrible pandemics.
0: God of our most rapturous joys and deepest growling fears.
2: God who was and is and will forever be present and steady and close.
0: When everything in us has been kicked up like a cloud of dust, slow the winds so we too can settle.
2: When the realization that we have no control over the future breaks anew, Hold our wild, grasping hands in your gentle steadiness.
0: When we seek comfort in objects and organization and do not find it, draw us closer and remind us that peace is found in you and it is found freely without our frantic striving.
2: When we are afraid, when we feel aloft and rootless, when it is all dust upon dust, remind us that you are our anchor, good and certain and always holding us fast tethered by your unshakable love. Amen.
0: Thank you all so much for being here. We'll be back with you on Tuesday between now and then. Join us on social media and on Patreon. Thanks for everything you're doing. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay at home, and keep it nuanced. Tim Miller. Martha Bronitsky, Tiffany Hasler. Joshua Allen. David McWilliams. Amy Whited. Allie Edwards. Jared Benson. And Allison Lusader. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're
2: involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com.
0: And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and
1: Twitter.